our journey through Acts, I want to invite you uh, to turn to Acts chapter 13 in your scriptures. I'm going to read the passage and then pause and, and we'll come back to it. This morning specifically, we're, we're looking at the verses uh, of chapter 13, 4 through 12, but I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter, which is where we were uh, last, last week, but it's just four verses, so I'll include it in the reading. So this is Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Luke reports, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we think about this this morning, this story the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas as they go to Cyprus and they have this crazy experience with this magician, this Jewish false prophet, and they're talking about faith and they're talking about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that today, 2019, here in this room, that we would learn from that, what you have for us to learn from it, that we would be able to walk with Jesus in the same way, that your disciples in that day walked with him in intimacy and power, filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would continue to shape our minds. And like our brother Josh prayed earlier, massage our hard hearts. God, giving us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone as we engage your word. We thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to have it. We'd be lost without it, God. We thank you for the scriptures and and those who recorded this. We thank you for Luke, who, who took the time to listen to the Spirit of God and record these precious stories for us that we could be encouraged some 2,000 years later. That's an incredible gift, God. We thank you for it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we engage this story this morning, here's the question I want you to ask yourself, 
and it's up on the screen, to whom do you pledge your allegiance? Who do you pledge your allegiance to? So in school, you pledge your allegiance to something, right? When you, when you went to public school, if you went to public school, or if you went to private school, you may have said the, the pledge to the Bible. Who do you pledge your allegiance to? And I'm not just talking about lip service. I'm talking about who do you actually give your allegiance to? Right. I hope so. But I want you to ask yourself practically, because... I mean, think about who, who here, and brave people, who here made a New Year's resolution this year? One person? Okay, I see a couple of hands. All right, so in our culture, what you do when it's New Year's is you make a resolution, I'm going to eat healthier, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to treat people better, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to whatever the, the list of, of things is. And I forget what the statistic is, but it's not encouraging how many people stick with their resolution throughout the year, right? And we, we've all had that experience where we made a resolution and then a couple weeks in, uh, we're not eating like we said we were going to eat. We're not exercising like we said we were going to. We're not reading a book a week like we thought we were going to, whatever, whatever the thing is. So that's where you give lip allegiance. You give lip service to something. You're pledging allegiance to something. And then reality is very different, Right? So, I mean, this is a hard word, but I think many of us pledge allegiance to Jesus, but our lives look a little bit different than, than that. Or we pledge allegiance to God's word, um, and, and yet it's not actually the thing that motivates and drives us in our day-to-day life, in our, in our workplace. So when you're, when you're in that place where it looks where no one's watching you, or it feels like no one's watching you to keep you accountable whether that's at your job, sitting at your desk, or in your home, or wherever that place is, where there's the least amount of accountability, what actually has your allegiance? Obviously, I don't want you to shout that out. You can just think about that this morning as we're engaging this scripture. And that word allegiance is so important uh, to this scripture, and it's going to be so important uh, to the story of Paul going forward. So this is a map of, uh, can you see that? A little small. This is a map of Paul's first missionary journey uh, with Barnabas. And you can see that um, they start out here in Antioch. And this is where all that cool stuff was happening in the church in Antioch, where the Gentiles first uh, heard the gospel. And then as they were in this church praying, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have for them. And it says they traveled to this port town, Seleucia, and then they traveled to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't specify where they're supposed to go. It's a lot like the call of Abraham. It just says, go, just go. And so they decide to go to Cyprus, which makes sense because Barnabas is from there. He wants to go take the gospel and the good news and all the stories about what God is doing in their lives to his home uh, in Cyprus. So they start on the eastern coast and they head then to Paphos. And this is where the story with this Jewish false prophet happens. And then later in the missionary journey, they move up into Asia Minor. And uh, we have in our scriptures the letter that's written to Galatians. And that would have been uh, these churches, and you can probably recognize some of the other uh, towns and cities in here. 
Scholars have long debated, and there's no consensus on this, the question, why did Paul choose the cities that he chose? So why did he go to the specific places he went? Because there's no obvious reason, really. Some of them are big, important towns. Some of them are kind of out-of-the-way places, not all that important, according to the world's standards. Some of them were easily accessible. Some of them not so much, where the journey would have been difficult to get there. So it wasn't ease of travel. I mean, Paul talks about how many times was he shipwrecked. It wasn't ease of travel. It was, there's, no, there's no obvious reason. One, one thing that, that some have suggested, and I think this is really good, a really good thought, especially in the context of this passage and others like it, is um, anybody heard of the cult of Caesar at this time? Have you heard of the cult of Caesar? So what would happen when Rome conquered a new place? Is the, the Roman army, when, when they conquered a new city one of the first things they would always do is they would set up a statue of Caesar. And then they would uh, demand that the population not only look at this statue of Caesar, but they would demand that the population call him Lord. So he was Lord Caesar. And then on top of that, then the population would have to offer sacrifices to Caesar. And there was this entire religion around the Caesars. Now, is it easier to rule someone if they think you're just Joe Schmo or if they think you're divine? It's a little bit easier to get people to do what you want them to do if they think you're God. And so part of this political uh, system that the Romans had in place was they would set up centers of worship in every town that they conquered where people would specifically have to pray to and worship Caesar, and they would call him, this is important, Caesar is Lord. And it's the same uh, Greek word that's translated as Jesus Christ is Lord. So in all of these towns, what's interesting is um, each of these towns was a center of worship of Caesar. So now we don't have, in the scriptures, they didn't Paul didn't explicitly state that he was going to places where the cult of Caesar was stronger. But we do know from archaeology and from ancient history that that the places, for whatever reason, that Paul and Barnabas chose to go were hot hot button places or, or, or centers of Caesar worship. Now, Paul's favorite terms all have political undertones. He calls Jesus Christ Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. So the, the people of Rome would have, or the under Roman rule would have had to say Caesar is Lord and the only Lord. But here comes this apostle who's saying Jesus Christ is Lord and the only Lord. Furthermore, another one of uh, Paul's favorite words is the Greek word pistis which is a funny word, but everybody say pistis. All right, and that is the word that's translated as faith in, in your New Testament. Now this word, I want to read this quote from uh, N.T. Wright. It's really helpful um, unpacking of the word. Because when we tend to think about faith, before you uh, look ahead, 
When we think about faith, what do, what do we think about? And go ahead and shout out. What do you think about when you think about the word faith? What does that mean? Trust. Trust. Belief. Devotion. What's that? Unseen. So having like belief and unseen, what's that? Accepting. Accepting. Yeah, and the typically the kind of American understanding of faith, and this isn't a bad thing, this is definitely part of it, uh, because of how the English language works, is we think of faith as a belief in something we can't see, which is definitely a part of it. We can't see Jesus with our physical eyes in our day-to-day lives. That's not, that's not how we walk with him. We walk by faith, not by sight. So that's a part of it. But faith, this word that Paul uses, pistis, actually has more meaning than that. There's, there's another component to it. And uh, this is where this uh, unpacking of it by N.T. Wright is really helpful. He says, one obvious Greek term for loyalty is one of Paul's favorite words, pistis. Regularly translated faith, but often carrying the overtones of faithfulness, reliability, and yes, loyalty. One of, you, one of uh, the answers was loyalty. The word pistis could mean faith in the sense of belief what was believed as well as the fact of believing, or indeed the act of believing, which already seems quite enough meaning for one small word. But pistis could also point, and this is, this is what I want to highlight. Follow this phrase with me. Pistis could also point to the personal commitment that accompanies any genuine belief. The personal commitment that accompanies the personal belief. In this case, that Jesus was now Lord, the world's rightful sovereign. Hence, the term means loyalty or allegiance. This was what Caesar demanded from his subjects. So in all of these towns where Caesar set up the cult of worship to himself, what he was demanding was pistis. He was demanding that the people would have allegiance, loyalty, and yes, faith and belief in him. This is what Caesar is demanding from the people that he conquers. Loyalty and allegiance, faith, belief. And here comes Paul saying the same thing, but about someone very different. For Paul, the word meant all of that, but much more. For him, this believing allegiance was neither simply a religious stance nor a political one. It was both and more. So with these uh, thoughts, let's go back to the scripture. Acts chapter 13. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist him. And this begins uh, the lifelong pattern that Paul will repeat over and over again. The first place he goes in each new town is where? The synagogue starts with the the Jewish uh, people, and then when there is a rejection of that, then he moves on uh, to the Gentile population of that town. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, as he writes later. Also, this John uh, is John Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas, and he was traveling uh, with them as their assistant. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island... As far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So here in Paphos, um, on the island of Cyprus, is this proconsul, this uh, Roman authority named Sergius Paulus. So he's got the, the same name, actually, as Paul. And this man is Caesar's ambassador to the island of Cyprus. So his job is to make sure that the people of Cyprus remain pledged in their allegiance and loyalty and faith to Caesar. That's his whole job. His job is to represent the kingdom of Caesar on the island of Cyprus. And anything that comes against that, he is supposed to snuff out and put down. This is his job as the representative of Caesar. So he, apparently though, was a man of intelligence, Luke tells us. And he hears about Paul and Barnabas and the work they're doing and the gospel that they're preaching. And so he summons them so he can hear the word of God. Verse 8, but Elimas, the magician, now that, that's an Aramaic uh, name and it just means literally the magician. So this is Bar-Jesus, the magician, Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name. He opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here's a Jewish man. And it says he's a magician and a false prophet. Now, if he uh, is, is a Jew who worships the one true God and he has a prophetic call in his life, most false prophets actually have a genuine prophetic call that's been twisted, right? So he's got a call in his life to faithfully represent the one true God, but this has been twisted. And we have uh, Paulus, this Gentile who's representing Caesar. This man, Bar-Jesus, should be bringing the truth to him daily, praying for him, encouraging him. He's got this privileged place where he gets to speak to this man, and yet he is using it for his own personal gain. And when Paul and Barnabas come, he senses a threat, and he's trying to uh, keep Paulus from hearing the truth, to turn away from the faith. Now this phrase here, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith, that word faith is the word pistis. So another way of thinking about this, he's not just trying to keep Paulus from believing about Jesus. He's trying to keep Paulus from having his heart devoted in allegiance to Jesus. And that's a slightly separate thing than just believing. Many of us have believed the gospel but have never lived with its power Uh, within us, giving lip service to following Jesus, um, but having experienced walking with the Holy Spirit in discipleship, taking up a cross, suffering with him, and I'm certainly guilty of that as well, (laughs) proclaiming allegiance to Jesus and then choosing my own way. This is the war within us that, that Paul often talks about, but the point of faith is that my whole mind, body, strength come into alignment and agreement with Jesus Christ being Lord. This is why we are to love God not just with our minds. We are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and our strength or our wills. Our wills are to love God. Have you ever loved God with your will? You're sitting in a situation where you are so tempted to do the wrong thing or think about the wrong thing or say something. 
It's an invitation from the Holy Spirit to love God with all your will. So when, the pro, when Bar-Jesus is trying to uh, deceive him, he's trying to keep Paulus from being a whole person, uh, fully devoted in allegiance to Jesus. Not just belief, but also life. Verse 9, but Saul, who is also called Paul. All right, I just have to take a, a moment to note this. From now on in the book of Acts, Saul will be Paul. And there's no explanation for why he was Saul up into this point and why he'll be Paul from now on. Luke just seamlessly says, and doesn't give it a second thought, Saul, also called Paul, and then from now on he's Paul. Which is a little bit confusing. Um, And again, there's disagreement and questions about why is that. Saul is a very Hebrew name. First king uh, of Israel was named Saul. Um, and as uh, one thought, and I think this is a good one, as Paul presses into his call to be an ambassador of Christ to the Gentiles, he actually takes his Gentile name, Paul, and begins to identify with that in order to be among the people that he's with. Does that make sense? When he says, when I'm in Rome, I act like a Roman. When I'm, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so it's actually the same name, Paul is Paulus. And so we can see him identifying that the other thing that's interesting, and I just think this is funny, is um, Saul is a Hebrew name, of course, but a slight derivative of it in Greek, um, and uh, Renee might be able to explain this, but this is ancient Greek, so I don't know how different it is than modern Greek, but um, if you take the word Saul, it was actually a word in Greek that meant you, <laughs> you walked with a limp or, you, or a man walking like a woman. Uh, And so we can see why Paul maybe didn't want that (laughs) identification as he was traveling in all these predominantly Greek-speaking places. And so for whatever reason, he chose to, uh, uh, from this point forward, be identified as Paul. So, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So he looks at Bar-Jesus, Elimas, this magician, And he says this, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making the uh, crooked, the straight paths of the Lord? What was one of the um, main missions of John the Baptist that we learned from the book of Isaiah? What was his job? Make straight the crooked paths, right? The true prophetic call, and we talked about this last week when we were talking about the prophetic gifting, the true prophetic call is to take a crooked path and make it straight. That is what prophecy is all about, which is why in Revelation, the angel says, uh, has that conversation with John, and John says, uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, where you're pointing straight to Jesus. That is prophetic ministry. And so the call of every prophet is to make straight the crooked paths. And this man presumably should have known his scriptures, right? He should have known the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, make straight the crooked paths. Mountains come down, valleys come up, level level road to God. But Paul says to him, rather than doing that, rather than taking what's crooked and making it straight, you're taking what's straight and making it crooked. Because the straight path 
to abundance of life and true life is Jesus Christ. That is the straight path, and you're taking it, and you're making it crooked. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately the mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Look at that last line. What was he astonished at? The miracle or something else? He was astonished at the teaching. Isn't that interesting? If that happened in front of me, I think I would be astonished by the miracle. <laughs> I, think, I think my astonishment would go towards that crazy thing that just happened. This guy was standing next to me. He said something that this other guy didn't like. This other guy went off on him, and all of a sudden, this guy couldn't see. That's crazy. But he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What was the teaching that Paul gave? What's the teaching that Paul is going around to all of these Roman cities teaching? Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a Messiah. Christ, the the Greek word Christ, um, all that means is Messiah. So every time you read Christ, in Paul's mind, what he's thinking is Messiah. And what does Messiah mean? Anointed one, literally. The anointed one. The Savior, the anointed one. God had promised his anointed one would come. So when Paul, whenever Paul says Jesus Christ, he's saying Jesus, the anointed one, the set apart one. And then he finishes that statement with Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he's going with this incredibly political, subversive statement into every town saying, you see this statue that says Caesar is Lord? That's wrong. There's a guy who lived, who's the son of God. Not only did he live a perfect life, but he died. And not only did he die, he was crucified. The worst kind of death you can have. And not only that, hardly anyone believed him and followed him. And he was buried, and people saw his dead body. But then God raised him from the dead. And he walked among us. And he revealed himself. And like someone who was born outside of time, Paul will write later, Jesus appeared to me last of all. And Jesus revealed to me the mission that I have, which is to go to the nations and proclaim this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Whoever is Lord reigns. Whoever reigns gets to say how we live. So Caesar got to say how people lived because he reigned. Paul, with this incredibly subversive message, going to all these towns and saying, no, Jesus gets to say how we live. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Paulus, the proconsul, who's the ambassador of Caesar, he probably would have met Caesar at some point. As he hears this message, he's astonished at this teaching. There is a man who perfectly represents the one God. And he is resurrected and seated at the hand of God. It's the teaching of Jesus Christ being Lord that astonishes him more than the miracle. And I think that is so beautiful. There's something about that that is so beautiful and worth learning from. Now, the word belief 
I know I'm doing a lot of like word study stuff this week, more than I normally do, but I felt it was important for this teaching. When it says he believed, that's a verb that's built on the noun for, for that pistis, for faith. And so it's a derivative of that. So he's saying, I have a belief that leads to commitment of the heart. That's what that means. So the proconsul believed. He believed in the faith, which means he had allegiance now. He's turned his allegiance from Caesar on to Jesus. Paul is in the same position as this man in the kingdom of God because Paul is Christ's ambassador. He is an apostle and a sent one who represents the kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom, represented by Paul and Barnabas, his ambassadors, show up in Caesar's kingdom, being represented by this proconsul who is an ambassador and apostle of Caesar. And there's a confrontation of truth. And Jesus shows up and the Spirit of God moves and this man believes he submits to the truth of Christ and releases his worship and his allegiance to Caesar. This is the last we hear about this man. I don't know what his life was like, but I guarantee you from this point forward, it was very different. He may have lost his position. He may have lost his prestige. He may have even been imprisoned for this sort of thing. But this is what Luke records, that from this point forward, he believed when he saw what, he had, what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And I believe that only Jesus, only the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God can do that. Only the message of Jesus can show up in a place like that and have that result. That's incredible. There's no army that came and conquered this place. There were no guns. There were no spears. There were no ships that came to invade it. Because our kingdom is not a kingdom that fights like that. Amen? Our kingdom is not a kingdom of force, physical force. Our kingdom is a kingdom of faith and obedience to Christ. People don't change because we force them to change. People change because the Spirit of God works in their life. God's kingdom is the only kingdom that works that way. His is the only kingdom that works that way. Every other kingdom works the other way. Where people come in and they force their way through physical power. Not so in our kingdom. We pray for people and God changes them. So whenever you're tempted to force someone into something physically, you can remember this. That's not how God's kingdom works. That's not his economy. His economy is prayer and faith. Jesus said, you don't know how the spirit causes someone to be born again. It's like the wind. It blows. Follow the spirit, you pray. So back to the question, what are we putting our faith in, our allegiance in? What are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your trust, your hope, your belief, your allegiance? And what are you inviting people into? As you share the gospel of the kingdom, you're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Whether or not you like that, if you have a relationship with Christ, you are an ambassador of Christ. Everywhere you go, you represent God's kingdom. So when you're in your place of work or your home or the school you go to or wherever it is, you are an ambassador of Christ. So where does your allegiance belong to And not just the lip service of, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I go to church on Sundays. But where is your heart fully devoted to? What are you, in that that quiet place when no one's watching, who are you devoted to? Where is your allegiance? Paul talks about faith in so many uh, different places in the epistles uh, and in the letters. And it's really helpful to have this definition of faith in mind. And I want to look at Romans 4 to end our time. 
And actually, uh, praise team, you can come forward. We're going to transition into taking communion together. And um, so, praise team, you can come up. But I want to I want to end this teaching with uh, Paul's writing in Romans. So now Paul is writing a letter to Christians who are living in Rome, the very seat of Caesar's power, where not just a statue of the man exists, but the man himself. And Paul writes about faith some incredibly beautiful things in the book of Romans. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This is why Paul says a little bit later, for the wages of sin is death. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that's the word pistis, the allegiance of his heart, belief that leads to commitment. His faith is counted as righteousness. So Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed, but it wasn't a belief that just believed up here. It was a belief that resulted in his life changing radically. Would Abraham have been counted righteousness if the Spirit of God would have said to him, Abraham, go, and Abraham would have said, I believe this is your voice, God. I hear it, and intellectually I agree with it, and then done nothing. Would Abraham have been righteous? No, of course not. Now, we know it's not his works that counted him as righteousness because God doesn't give righteousness through works. So what is it? If it's not just the belief, the mental assent to a truth, and it's not works, what is it? It's the allegiance of his heart that ties both of those things together. When God's voice came into Abraham's life and said, go, yes, Abraham believed it, but then he actually did something about it. He obeyed. And this is what faith means, loyalty, devotion, obedience to the belief that we have in God. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who was justified, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord has not counted his sin. And this is the good news. And I want this thought to lead us into participating in the bread and the cup this morning. Therefore, just a little bit later in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by pistis, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. How do we know that God loves us? Because he pours his Holy Spirit into us. 
goes on to say, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And as he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, not only have we received reconciliation, but we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means as we represent his kingdom as ambassadors, wherever we go, we have one main job. Our main job is to reconcile people to God. And we can't do that. That's the spirit that does that. But our main job is to be participants in God's reconciliation to others. We think of ministry as me preaching on a Sunday morning, but friends, this isn't ministry. This is an equipping ministry. Ministry is when you go to wherever you're going to go later today. Ministry is where you show up tomorrow, wherever you are. That's what real, true ministry is because you, my friends, the people of God, you are ministers and saints of the kingdom, ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And you have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. That's not my job as a pastor, although it is my job as a follower of Christ. My job is to equip. Your job, just as a saint, as a follower of Christ, is actually to be that wherever God called you to go. That is so beautiful.